Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 2, Unification and Collapse in China. When we last left China, the Han Dynasty had just faced its final collapse, officially ending in 220 CE as central power deflated under the weight of rebellions, corruption, and power-grabbing courtiers. In its place, there arose three nations which each claimed the right to rule. These were the Eastern Wu, the Shu Han, and the Chao Wei, which I will refer to as the Wu, Shu, and Wei states. The Wu state claimed control of most of China's eastern and southern seaboards. The Shu state occupied the inland area to the west and south, while the Wei state claimed the northern regions including the North Korean Leilong and Daifang commanderies. This process of splintering in three was not just some regional balkanization, but a drawn-out affair in which political leaders seized power, claimed legitimacy, fought against rivals on the battlefield, and desperately tried to secure their legacies for future generations. In many ways, it was a return to the chaotic period of warring states. The three kingdoms were plagued by internal instability as well as threats from one another, and the Wei state in particular fell into a military-controlled government with a figurehead monarch who risked his own assassination if he tried to grab power back from the generals. In 262 CE, General Sima Zhao of the Wei state came to believe that the Shu state to their south had become too weakened by constant warfare to resist a full invasion. By the end of the next year, he would be proven right. With the Shu state fully subjugated, General Sima Zhao began consolidating his power in what was a fairly obvious attempt to establish himself as the founder of a new ruling dynasty. He accepted the title of Duke of Jin, then adopted the title of King of Jin. In 265 CE, however, his plans were delayed considerably when he died. His son, Sima Yan, took advantage of his father's groundwork, and in 266 he successfully forced the Wei monarch to appoint him as his heir and then abdicate the throne. After styling himself Emperor Wu of the Jin dynasty, Sima Yan posthumously declared his father to be the founder of that ruling house, naming him Emperor Wen of Jin. Emperor Wu immediately sought to reform what he saw as weaknesses in the former Wei state. He empowered many of his family members by giving them independent control over regions in the north and ordered his generals to be ready to fight two enemies, the Wu state in the southeast and the Xiongnu and other so-called barbarian peoples in the north, who had grown strong in the wake of decades-long Chinese civil war. After 14 more years of attacking, defending, gaining victories, and dealing with setbacks, the Wu state could no longer resist the Jin assault, and Emperor Sun Hao surrendered to the Jin state and encouraged his subjects to lay down their arms as well. Thus, in 280 CE, the Wu state was gone, and the Jin dynasty had successfully united all of China under their rule. If you're thinking that surely this unification was the beginning of a new golden age for the Middle Kingdom, 
prepare to be disappointed. Emperor Wu inherited the administration of the former Wei state with all of its benefits and pitfalls. He had secured his place on the throne by empowering family members within the Sima clan, and many of them now had private armies as well as tax-free autonomous land. It all feels very similar to the Zhou dynasty and would produce the same results only much faster. We'll start with the military. The Wei state's original founder, Chao Chao, created a system of military organization in which certain families were designated as military families. Adult males in these families served in the military for life, and when they became too old or ill, they would send a son or other close male relative to serve in their place. The female members of these families lived in the Wei state's capital and were forbidden from marrying into a family that was not another military family. Thus, the loyalty of the soldiers was secured by the implicit fate of their families if they disobeyed in the field, and the Wei state's military was kept strong by forbidding any family member from marrying outside their caste. You might be thinking, hey, this sounds kind of like the samurai. First of all, spoilers. And second, there are probably some comparisons to be made, but this was a top-down structure meant largely to keep the military accountable, whereas the samurai had much more gradual and organic origins, which we will talk about much later in our narrative. Conscription of peasants was still occasionally employed when needed, and the military families eventually developed alliances and coalitions with one another that led to Sima Yan's coup and the founding of the Jin dynasty itself. You might think that Emperor Wu, having himself consolidated power through his own military clan, would take measures to reduce the power of those military families and the clans they continued to forge. However, when he seized power, he still needed the military establishment to prosecute two wars, one against the Wu state to the southeast and another against the Xiongnu in the north. Once those conflicts were resolved victoriously, he did order regional governors to disband their militias and occupy themselves with purely civilian affairs. Regarding the powerful military families and their clan coalitions, he did nothing to reduce their power apart from promoting members of his own clan, presumably under the assumption that family members would not make war on one another. Emperor Wu's legacy would be that of a competent military leader and able politician who fell into wasteful opulence in his later years. He would serve as the emperor of a newly unified China until his death in 290 CE. A healthy amount of power-grabbing shenanigans among his powerful relatives meant that they would now get to use their private armies in a disastrous, chaotic period, which would ultimately destabilize the recently unified nation and plunge it once more into the fires of feudal war. First came the Rebellion of Eight Princes, which began as a dispute within the Sima clan that spilled into intermittent regional warfare. In 307 CE, Sima Yue successfully claimed hegemony, establishing himself as regent over Emperor Hui, as well as his successor, Emperor Huai. The stress of securing the kingdom from step raids and counteracting plots from his ambitious peers exacted a toll on his health, and in 311, just four years after seizing power, he died and disaster followed. Emboldened by the chaos, 
the nomadic Xiongnu, Jia, Chong, and Di peoples invaded from the north and west, capturing both the capital city of Luoyang as well as Emperor Huai himself. The steppe groups established their own independent kingdoms from the conquered territory, and the Jin dynasty was forced to relocate in the southeast, where they would remain until their final collapse. Thus, the early period of the Jin dynasty is demarcated by historians as the Western Jin dynasty, and the later period post-conquest as the Eastern Jin dynasty. The Eastern Jin fared little better than their predecessors, suffering from internal strife driven by an influx of refugee-dispossessed northern nobles and frequent conflicts between the imperial court, staffed mostly by northerners, and the local administrators in the south. This was complicated by the fact that a significant population of the south belonged to indigenous people groups, which at best grudgingly accepted imperial sovereignty. Small-scale local rebellions spread like wildfire across the land, and these became increasingly difficult to suppress considering how decimated the military families had become by the incessant warfare from previous generations. Desperate to bolster the military in the face of such threats, the Eastern Jin Dynasty began recruiting from convicts, vagabonds, and indigenous groups. This led to a loss of status for soldiers who had previously enjoyed the benefits of long-term hereditary exclusivity. Likewise, morale in the armies dropped like a stone. Many of the new recruits spoke different languages and followed very different customs and battlefield tactics. Meanwhile, in the north, the various steppe groups grappled with one another until in 376 CE, a state we refer to as the former Qin, united all of northern China under its rule. Emperor Xuanzhao was of Di descent, and in 383, he made plans to invade the south and conquer the Jin dynasty. This brought the various quarreling factions of the Jin together, and after some initial setbacks, the Jin army defeated the forces of former Qin at the Battle of Fei River. Though this triumph was owed in no small part to a massive stroke of luck, the loose coalition which had rallied under the former Qin began splintering once more, a situation which a more unified dynasty might have seen as an opportunity. After annexing some of the former Qin territory to their north, the Jin dynasty went right back to fighting and scheming amongst themselves until finally the last emperor of the Sima clan was overthrown in 420 CE in a coup not unlike the one which Sima Yan had staged so many years before. Throughout the Jin dynasty, the state-sponsored sects of Taoism were promoted and championed by the powerful, but they were not as popular among the common people as the more accessible forms which the government actively and brutally tried to suppress. The state-sponsored form of Taoism had adopted a blend of Confucianism and legalism, which I think was best exemplified in its declaration that obedience to a sovereign was a Taoist virtue. Buddhism continued to grow and develop among the Chinese during the Jin dynasty as well. Its central focus on the causes of suffering found a ready audience among the common people. A famous monk of Western Chinese origin named Dharmaraksa translated over 150 texts into Chinese, including the Lotus Sutra, which helped spread Mahayana Buddhism throughout the land. 
The Jin Dynasty period is also credited with a few technological advancements amid the generally chaotic political state. While the Han Dynasty receives credit for the first mounting stirrups in China, riding stirrups are believed to have been first utilized by the Chinese during the Jin Dynasty. While it might seem like a minor advancement, especially to people who have never ridden a horse, stirrups are actually quite important. Cavalry soldiers can better control their mounts and gain greater stability on horseback, which makes them more effective in battle. Stirrups meant the advent of heavy cavalry among the Chinese, a development which would have a rippling impact throughout the history of the region. After General Lu Yu overthrew the last Jin emperor in 420 CE and founded the Liu Song dynasty in the south, China entered a period known as the Northern and Southern Dynasties period. The north was still occupied by nomadic groups such as the Xiongnu, Di, Shanbei, and Jie, but an interesting process was occurring as these formerly migratory peoples governed their sedentary Chinese subjects. Historians refer to this as Sinicization, and what it essentially means is that the so-called barbarian groups were gradually adopting more traditional Chinese customs. One such Shanbei group, the Tuoba, took advantage of the former Qin state's collapse after the Battle of Fei River and embarked on a path of consolidating the north under its own hegemony, forming a state we now refer to as the Northern Wei Dynasty, which in 439 CE succeeded in its mission to bring its northern neighbors to heel. At first, the Tuoba ran the north much like their Xiongnu and Di predecessors, oppressing and subjugating the local settled population and ruling over them as their conquerors. Ethnic Han Chinese were employed as bureaucrats and low-level administrators, but absolutely forbidden from serving in any office with political power. The northern noble families had long since militarized and began forming autonomous fiefs which, if left unchecked, may have eventually threatened Shanbei hegemony. Seeking to appease their subjects and stave off rebellions, the northern Wei began steadily adopting Sinicization in their fashion, religion, and by allowing Buddhism and Taoism, both of which spread throughout northern and southern China in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. In addition to tangling with their southern rivals, the Northern Way also expanded to the west, trying to gain control of as much of the Silk Road as possible. The Liu Song dynasty in the south was just as plagued with rebellions, plots, assassinations, and general mismanagement as the Eastern Jin dynasty before them. They lost vast stretches of territory in squabbles with the Northern Way and eventually frustration within the military led to a coup in 479 CE, just 59 years after the coup which put the Liu Song in power. The new dynasty that ruled in the south is known to us as the Southern Qi, and that family's reign would last less than half as long as their predecessors before they would be replaced, much in the same way, by the Liang dynasty in 502 CE. The Northern Wei likewise began to decline in the 500s with a combination of petty court intrigues, a resentful army who felt disrespected by rulers who seemed unappreciative of the warrior class, and increasingly bold raids from nomadic neighbors seeking relief from famines in their homelands. In 530 CE, 
the instability came to a head when rival generals supported different candidates to inherit the throne, and the nation was plunged into a civil war which ended in 534. The result was a kingdom divided. The Eastern Wei and Western Wei dynasties would limp along until the former was transformed briefly into the short-lived Northern Qi dynasty, and then the Western Wei was transformed by Ku into the Northern Zhou dynasty, which then conquered the Northern Qi in 557. In the south, Emperor Wu of the Liang dynasty began ruling in 502 and leaned heavily into Confucian reforms. He established universities across the country and reinstated a civil service exam for people who wanted to serve the state. He wholeheartedly adopted Buddhism and patronized the arts throughout his kingdom, making more than a few contributions to poetry himself. He reigned for nearly 50 years, considered to be the high point of the Liang dynasty. Many of his family members were hopelessly corrupt, however, and he seems to have done little to curtail their bad habits. Once he died, a struggle for the throne quickly coalesced into court intrigues, factional plots, and sectarian violence. Emperor Wu's successors would all have short reigns which generally ended with military coups, supporting a different heir until, in 557, part of the kingdom was carved out into the short-lived Chen dynasty. The Western Liang rump state would limp along until its dissolution in 587, the Chen dynasty lasting just a few more years until ending in 589. The Northern Zhou, meanwhile, would reign over unified northern China until 581 CE. And this is where we leave China for now, having spent most of the 400s and 500s in a state of fairly chaotic disarray. We'll catch up with their political situation later this season. What did it mean for East Asia that China was filled with constant upheavals, plots, and royal turnover? You may recall that throughout the Han Dynasty, China's prominence in East Asia was unavoidable. Its trade networks, statecraft, and diplomacy would serve as a model which emerging states throughout the region would seek to emulate. Now that the grand facade of a unified dynastic government had been stripped away by the constant upheaval of rival warlords, invasive nomads, and interfamily rivalry and intrigue, China's reputation for stability and their position as a leading political force in the East were severely damaged. The pattern that emerges from this period is not entirely surprising when one considers the doctrine of the Mandate of Heaven, as well as the unique relationship which Chinese dynasties had with their militaries. In Sun Tzu's Art of War, for example, he encourages generals to openly disobey their sovereigns if those sovereigns attempt to interfere once they already have an army in the field. This is a highly conditional situation to be sure, but many strategists who followed in his footsteps agreed that the general was the absolute lord of his army once they were on the march and should be allowed to ignore bad advice from royalty without penalty. Military clans replaced dynastic royalty only for their own descendants to be replaced in a similar method later on. China's influence waned dramatically during this period of instability, and those rising powers on Japan who sought to unify the nation under their own rule looked to other states for inspiration as China repeatedly sank into chaos. Next time, we'll learn about the place where the Yamato court and other ambitious polities 
looked for inspiration to unify and rule their own nation, the Korean Peninsula. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.